0: Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I'm Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer at NACE. This is the first episode in a two-part series on recent updates in managing hyperkalemia in patients with heart failure, CKD, and hypertension. Joining me today is Dr. George Backrus. Dr. Bakris is the Director of the AHA Comprehensive Hypertension Center and Professor of Medicine at University of Chicago Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. Glad you could join me, George.
1: Thanks very much, Greg. Good to be here.
0: George, in this podcast, we're going to review the causes, consequences and ultimately, management of hyperkalemia. And in the second podcast, we'll discuss strategies to ultimately manage hyperkalemia in patients with heart failure, CKD and hypertension. So George, you know as well as anyone that hyperkalemia is a really common condition in certain patient population and can certainly increase the risk for hospitalizations and mortality, especially when potassium levels are not monitored appropriately. So I thought to get a start us, it would be great for you to tell us a little bit about the causes of hyperkalemia and how potassium is actually managed in the body.
1: Very good. First of all, the kidney handles 90% of the body's potassium, and the distal colon actually handles about 10%. So it's important to understand that as long as you have good kidney function, the probability of developing hyperkalemia is remote at best. So the people that have problems with hyperkalemia are people that generally have kidney disease and or heart failure and heart kidney disease as a result or related to the heart failure or something in between. But the bottom line is, if you don't have kidney disease the risk of developing heart failure of hyperkalemia is very, very, very low. So that's number one. So focusing now on the population of people that have kidney disease. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about an estimated GFR of less than 60 and definitely below 45 is really where the action is. If your GFR is below 45, you're going to have a problem. Now, in those circumstances, what are the issues? Number one, you want to watch your dietary intake of potassium. And basically, it's not a huge list, but a very common list. So, a number of dietary factors like watermelon, cantaloupe, largely fruits, are going to be very high in potassium. And so, you want to decrease the amount that you take in of that. Salt substitute is potassium. So that you want to watch out. And the other thing is, if you're taking pain medications, specifically non-steroidal agents like Advil or Aleve or anything like that, those are going to reduce your kidney function and further increase your risk of having hyperkalemia. So it's a number of things that clearly can be modulated by altering lifestyle.
0: Thanks, George. That's really helpful and I think sets us up for the rest of the discussion. And I wanted to really talk more about medicines and the influence of medicines, particularly RAS inhibitors, which are really a critical part of how we manage many patients, and especially when considering um, patients that are affected by hyperkalemia. Many of our guidelines require RAS inhibitors, and I think it's important to understand how those medicines really affect potassium levels as well as the other things you've mentioned previously?
1: So, excellent point. It's very true that the drugs that actually protect the kidney are drugs that are going to lend themselves to increase your risk for hyperkalemia. And so, why is that? Because these drugs inhibit the renin-angiotensin system. And this system is key in the pathogenesis of diabetic kidney disease and other kidney diseases. And so whether you're using an ACE inhibitor, an angiotensin receptor blocker, or a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, all of those are going to affect potassium to a certain extent. And I think it's important to understand that... The magnitude of the effect is going to be a function of number one, the magnitude of the decrease in kidney function that you already have, because these agents may further decrease kidney function a little bit, 10 to 20%, which is totally acceptable, totally normal. And hyperkalemia may be the result where you didn't have it before. And that's also true although less true in heart failure because over time cardiac function improves, but still there may be a period there where potassium could be an issue and that needs to be managed. Not, let me repeat, not by stopping these drugs, but by taking other avenues.
0: Great. I think that's a great segue, not stopping these drugs, which are clearly shown to promote benefit and improve outcomes, but yet have potential potential risk for side effects, particularly in this case, hyperkalemia. So let's then say, let's take it to the next step. Hyperkalemia is developed in our patients. Before we jump into sort of advanced therapies, what's been the standard approach to management of hyperkalemia, sort of our first steps?
1: First step is to educate the patient about dietary factors. Second step is to make sure they're on an appropriate diuretic for their level of kidney function, because most of these patients have significant reduction in kidney function. And if they're not following a low sodium diet, if they're if they have edema, clearly a diuretic is mandated, and not only is it mandated, it will help dump extra potassium. So those are factors that are the kind of the first step. The last step are potassium binders, and up until recently, the reason they were the last step is because all we had was sodium polystyrene sulfonate, which was terribly tolerable by anybody, and so you could only take it for a day or two, and it doesn't consistently work either, so that's an issue.
0: So before I move on to the next question, you were talking about dietary changes. DASH diet has been a commonly recommended diet. What do you advise your patients who are following a DASH diet in there for their management of well, their
1: state? I'm going to answer that in German just to make it very clear. <laughs> das is verboten. You absolutely, positively do not want to give a DASH diet to anybody with advanced kidney disease because it is exceedingly high in potassium.
0: Right. Bad choice then for someone who's already having challenges managing their potassium. So putting this in perspective, you talked about some of the issues with these strategies that might lead us into what to do next. The more specific challenges that are clinicians listening to this program might really experience with these traditional methods of managing potassium and why newer methods might be more appropriate.
1: What you want is something that can manage potassium in a way that allows you to give kidney and heart protective therapies and do it in a way that is well tolerated by the patient is not going to lead to any kind of new untoward side effects, and with assurance that it's reliable and you can take it day in and day out.
0: Um, and just to clarify, one of the other you know, established therapies, um, SPS, you had mentioned earlier, and in- Sorbitol has been used as well. Can you talk a little bit about that combination of therapies that some clinicians may be using?
1: Yeah. So SPS by itself is an erratic binder of potassium. Let me remind everybody it was approved in 1958. Sorbitol was found to improve the potassium binding But sorbitol in large quantities can actually be a gut irritant. And even in chewing gum, if you eat too much gum with sorbitol, you will get diarrhea. And diarrhea is obviously the main mechanism of eliminating potassium from the gut when you use SPS. So the binding is part of it, but sorbitol enhances the diarrhea. Unfortunately, more recent studies have shown that SPS can cause bad bowel disease and has actually led to a black box. Sorbitol actually increases the risk of this developing from SPS. And so anybody that's using SPS needs to be aware that there's a black box warning against its use because of this problem with the bowel. And let me be clear. What I'm talking about is not a one-time use. I'm talking about chronic use.
0: George, this has been really helpful. Any final thoughts about the assessment of these patients that our colleagues need to be aware of before we jump into other therapies to manage it?
1: I guess I would say that anybody that has kidney disease, especially those with GFRs of 45 or less, there needs to be attention given to the potassium The patients think the only thing that has potassium is bananas. So they need an education. And there are multiple sheets on the websites of the Kidney Foundation, et cetera. They need to be given these sheets, educated on it, because you can actually, if the patient sticks with the diet, you can actually reduce potassium by as much as 0.4 milliequivalents simply with dietary intake reduction. So that and being aware of medications. And other factors that are used all the time, not just pain medicines, but beta blockers and other things, that all needs to be informed to the patient so that they understand that they can't just do what they do under normal circumstances.
0: George, thanks so much for really taking the time to speak with me today and share your expertise on the challenges of hyperkalemia and how our colleagues out there can do a better job of managing their patients. I think you provided some great information today.
1: Thanks, Greg, for having
0: me. If you're interested in learning more about recent developments in the management of hyperkalemia and high-risk patients, join George and I for the second part of our discussion titled Emerging Options for Managing Hyperkalemia and Challenging Patients. You can also go to the NACE website at NACEOnline.com and register for any of our other enduring activities on hyperkalemia, heart failure chronic kidney disease, or any other program we've developed, please like us on Facebook at NACME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. Finally, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you've learned something new you can bring back to your practice. We look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.